Welcome to Embargo, the podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions, export controls, and all things international trade for sanctions nerds and normal human beings alike. I am your host, Brian Fleming. I'm here with my friend, colleague, and co-host, Mr. Tim O'Toole. What is up, Tim? What is up, Brian? It has been a long, long road to the 4th of July. It has. It, yes. Quarantine. In, in the age of quarantine, it, uh, you know, time has lost all meaning. And uh, we're just, we're recording this Monday, July 6th. Uh, so we're just coming out of the 4th of July holiday weekend. Hope everybody out there, uh, wherever you are, certainly any uh, anybody in the States had a nice weekend, was able to get out and enjoy some fresh air uh, with your mask on at a socially appropriate distance from uh, whoever else was out and about. Uh, but uh, yeah, it is uh, it is a long long time to get here uh, um, th- this year more than more than most. Um, but welcome to everybody uh, to the latest episode of Embargoed. Um, we thanks again to everybody for your continued support, uh, comments uh, that we're getting on social media, email, texts, etc. We really appreciate it. Uh, would certainly encourage everybody in that vein if you're listening to the pod, you're watching us on YouTube. Uh, we are our friends at um, Parkcast Media are gonna. Uh, we're told uh, add a few bells and whistles to the to the production this week, so you may be enjoying that as we speak, uh, but please give us a give us a rating, hopefully a five-star rating. Uh, subscribe so that you can get uh, our new content every two weeks. Um, and uh, again, you can find us wherever you get your pods, Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Overcast, et cetera. Uh, and again, appreciate the continued support. Um, so just to um, dispense with the normal formalities, we are uh, not here giving legal advice, no confidential information being discussed. Uh, and, and just to take us through kind of the normal roadmap uh, process here in case you want to skip to anything. Uh, surprise, surprise, most of our content today is going to be China focused, uh, as it has been for much of the last couple months. Uh, we're going to start off with the latest from Hong Kong. Uh, some big developments since in the last two weeks since we were last uh, since we last recorded. Uh, so we'll start with Hong Kong. We're going to move to uh, the guidance that was put out by BIS relating to the new military end use and in user rules. Uh, then we're going to go to uh, the a, an advisory that was just put out, a joint advisory by several agencies relating to forced labor in China uh, last week. A, sort of an interesting. Um, development that ties into a lot of things that we've been talking about recently. And then uh, that's going to conclude our program. Uh, We think those three topics will probably take us quite a while to work our way through. And then the lightning round is going to be especially lightning this week. We're going to hit a joint Venezuela-Iran topic to start. And then we're going to circle back to our, one of our favorite topics, uh, of course, Huawei. Uh, So with that- We can't do a show without Huawei and we can't do a show without really focusing on China. We can't. It just, it's where it's happening right for now. Better, for better, for better, for worse, that yeah. is the world we are living in, in uh, 2020, uh, July of 2020. So uh, any thoughts before we kick off, Tim? No, I mean, I'm just struck by how we keep coming back to China, but that really is all that is going on in the trade world right now, or at least 90% of it. It's certainly casting a long shadow across everything that we see in here. So uh, with that, let's, let's jump into item number one, which as I said, was Hong Kong. So we covered... Hong Kong pretty extensively a couple of episodes back as we talked about uh, the latest developments there, the statements by various U.S. government officials about the threats to suspend Hong Kong's special status, uh, the the rumored sanctions bill, uh, et cetera, which were all in response to the actions taken by the Chinese central government uh, to impose a, uh, I think, fair to say, unwanted and un, um, unanticipated, at least until very recently, uh, security bill on Hong Kong that is going to uh, permit the Chinese government to have far greater influence on certain critical aspects of Hong Kong life, not the least of which are uh, the ability to crack down on uh, pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong, and also the ability to intervene in legal, other types of legal affairs 
in Hong Kong. And also, as we'll talk about in a minute, um, perhaps extend its reach now that the law has actually been passed, extend its reach to beyond Hong Kong shoulders to go after uh, foreigners who try to um, incite action in Hong Kong or take pro-democracy stances, anti-China stances, et cetera. So um, all spurred on by that uh, legislation, that bill, which just in fact was passed uh, about a week ago in China. And so quickly on the heels of that, a couple of big, um, uh, big responses from the US. So number one, that special status for Hong Kong has in fact now been suspended. And we'll talk about what that means in a minute. Uh, the Commerce Department uh, came out right away with a statement relating to uh, the uh, export control treatment that Hong Kong is now going to receive under uh, the Export Administration regulations, and, and we'll cover that in a second. And then the second piece is later uh, in the week, just a few days ago now, um, the Hong Kong Autonomy Act uh, passed both houses of Congress and is uh, presumably sitting, uh, at least metaphorically, on the president's desk at the moment. Uh, if not literally, and is awaiting signing by the president. Now, notably, um, the president and the White House have not, did not come out right away and indicate support for that law or uh, a firm view on whether it was going to be signed. Uh, as a practical matter, it's going to be signed because both houses passed it unanimously, I believe. I think it was a total whitewash in both houses uh, by voice vote only. So this is veto-proof and is going to become a law, uh, and it's just a question of how long it takes the president to sign it, I think. So um, those are two pretty big developments, and, and, in, and in particular, uh, and we'll save some of this for the second part of our conversation about Hong Kong here, but the, as, we, uh, as we sort of hinted at when we first talked about the, Hong Kong, the prospect of a Hong Kong sanctions law a few weeks ago, um, this one does have in its uh, purview financial institutions. And so that is a big development. That is a major step in terms of giving any Hong Kong related sanctions real teeth from a US sanctions perspective. And so that we'll talk about that a bit more in a moment. But, but let me circle back to, um, to you, Tim, on just before we dump, jump into the BIS announcement about the export control changes and the, um, the fact that license exceptions relating to Hong Kong have now been suspended and gone away, um, what are you, where do you want to start here? What are your sort of first thoughts on all this, um, just relating to what just happened, what just transpired in the last few days with respect to Hong Kong? Well, I mean, let me just start with kind of a personal thought on this. I mean, Hong Kong is just one of the most interesting, fun, weird, like just a, an incredible city and kind of a mix between East and West. And just, it has all sorts of unique aspects to it that really the whole thing that's going on with Hong Kong really in the last year has made me very sad. Um, with respect to the trade developments in particular, I do think from on, on a really high level, we have to think about whether or not these trade elements are really the beginning of a move uh, from Hong Kong being kind of the hub of Western trade with China and certainly, you know, US and UK trade with China um, to, to moving that trade somewhere else, be it Singapore or somewhere else in Asia. I mean, and, and I think that that, that is really what is potentially at stake here because, you know, both in connection with sanctions policies and export policies, uh, the U.S. attitude toward China, toward China and the U.S. attitude Hong Kong, toward Hong Kong just as a foreign policy matter have been very different really until the last two weeks. And, and they've been changing, but I think that the last two weeks have, have really galvanized in the U.S., and it's not just the U.S., there's been another number of other Western countries that have started this move towards treating Hong Kong as though it's China. And, you know, to the extent that that happens, I really do wonder what it's going to do generally to change Hong Kong's status, not just from a trade perspective, but from a, the, the way the city is set up. Is it going to be just a, another city in China? And I think that the answer is probably yes, um, unless, unless some of these sanctions change behavior. And I, I think we should probably talk about that maybe at the end. But I think that, the, to me, the chances that, that the sanctions policy here are really going to change beha behavior are close to zero. Yeah, I mean, I think the... Um, that's all well said. I think the, if you look at 
so sort of two two things to to sort of think about here and and to we hope that there are most people here who've listening have had a chance to visit Hong Kong. Tim and I have been there uh, multiple times and have um, many people that we're in touch with there on a fairly regular basis. So uh, when he notes that this is sort of sad, it is it is on a personal level, I think, for both of us. Um, but I, I would say that, so w just let me talk for one second about the, the Chinese law that, that is sort of driving all this first. So I think there is, from what I understand, and, and I have not tried to read, I've, re I've read a translated copy and I've read a lot of reporting on, on the law itself, but uh, obviously we're not Chinese legal, ex legal experts, but uh, there's a lot of ambiguity and a lot of sort of fluidity and, and play in the joints that's there, which as a general matter tends to signal trouble because it just means that the people who are uh, sort of behind the curtain, pulling the strings, uh, are able to sort of interpret this as, as they see fit. And there's not a lot of uh, sort of predictability, regularity, and consistency to how the law may be applied. So that's, I think, what is driven most, you know, U.S. and other Western fears about what this is going to, uh, you know, mean in the future. And so that's, that's certainly one um, big problem area. I think on the other side of it, on the U.S. sanction side of this, with with the the Hong Kong Autonomy Act that presumably is going to be a law very soon, the uh, you know the scope there is similarly pretty broad, and as Tim said, um, you know it, we'll see. So far, there has been no evidence whatsoever from any of the actions the U.S. government has really taken within whether it's. Uh, whether it's on the sanctions front or the export controls front or anything else that the Chinese government is really going to, uh, the, the, any of these things are going to bring the Chinese government to heel. They're going to, Chinese government is going to do what they're going to do, what they think is in the best interest of China. And they are to some, they will wage a war of words with the U S but they're not necessarily going to change their conduct, uh, unless there were something really drastic that were to happen. And I don't see this being it. Uh, I think this certainly gives the possibility that uh, OFAC may at some point and that the US government may at some point have many Chinese officials and others in Hong Kong and elsewhere uh, subject to sanctions underneath under this act. There is like um, the Uyghur Human Rights Bill that we talked about a few weeks ago, and and the the most recent Hong Kong Act that was passed in 2019, there was a reporting period. The State Department's supposed to issue a report uh, in within 90 days about individuals that are uh, that are part of the degradation of sort of China's promises to keep Hong Kong autonomous. As we know, we'll see if they actually meet that deadline. Uh, you know, that's going to put us. <laughs> Not surprisingly, right right around election time, and there's a lot of other things going on. So I'm not holding my breath that we're getting a report from the State Department on this in 90 days. And then within 60 days thereafter, the Treasury Department is supposed to issue a report with financial institutions that are engaging in significant transactions with those individuals. So that, too, I think I would not be holding my breath that we're getting that on that timeline. We're still timeline. waiting for the Nord Stream 2 report. Yeah, there's lots of reports we're waiting for from <laughs> those agencies and many others. So... Um, that's a long-winded way of saying I don't, you know. Again, as a symbolic gesture, this is a big, this is a big move, a big step. What is this really going to mean in the short term in terms of how energetically this is all going to be enforced remains to be seen, and how much in the long term this is really going to impact anything also remains to be seen. I just, I don't have a lot of, um, I don't have a lot of faith right now that this is despite the fact that there is unified agreement in U.S. policymaking circles, which of course there's no, there's agreement on literally nothing in the U.S. Congress other than this, it would seem to me, uh, that uh, this, you know, may not, there may not be much of a ripple effect on, on, you know, with respect to Hong Kong. Now, if there's, if there's larger international pressure, perhaps that gets brought to bear, uh, maybe, you know, maybe in the long term that could do something, but we're not going to know for a while. And others, you know, I think Tim alluded to the fact that other countries have kind of started to line up in this way. I know Canada, I believe, has announced something similar to the position the U.S. has announced with respect to its treatment of Hong Kong. I think other countries are either contemplating or have announced the same. So we'll have to see. But but again, I don't foresee China changing its behavior. And now that it has a 
it has its its sort of a foothold in its foot is its toes over the line and they're this is the response i don't i don't know that much is gonna is gonna uh that we're talking about here is gonna make them backtrack yeah i mean so i mean with all sanctions policies you have to kind of think what can we possibly accomplish in, in putting the sanctions into place i mean we we impose sanctions against china some form of trade sanctions all the way back to Tiananmen Square. There wasn't a China sanction program, but there's been an arms embargo in place since the Tiananmen Square actions. And those obviously didn't really change the behavior of the, the Chinese government with respect to human rights over the years. Um, we've, we adopted this, the Uyghur sanctions program fairly recently, and we're gonna talk more about kind of some of the, the ripple effects of that. And, and sanctions are, are pretty good at accomplishing limited goals if you've got kind of a plan, particularly if they're multilateral sanctions and you've got a plan in place where you put them into place, they're, they're really powerful when you put them into place, you tell the other side what it's gonna need to do in order to, to get out from under the sanctions. Here you've got some of that. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that uh, what caused these sanctions to go into place was the national the passage of the national security law i think if china were to back off from that um that these sanctions would be lifted presumably uh but but you know china passed the law knowing that these sanctions were going to go into place and it's and it's really it seems unlikely in my view unless there's a much bigger multilateral effort to enforce these and unless they're they're really ramped up because the way that the autonomy act works as as you pointed out brian is so so the ofac can sanction individuals within the chinese government who are responsible for essentially the national security law. And they do that. And then the, the treasury is in, empowered and the state department is empowered to impose secondary sanctions against foreign financial institutions that uh, facilitate significant transactions on behalf of some of the sanctioned Chinese individuals. So there's a couple of steps. First, they've got a sanction you know, and those are all probably going to be preceded by a report. First, there's reports on both of those issues. Then there's sanctions imposed first on the individuals or the, the entities that are responsible for the national security law. Then you have the sanctions imposed on the financial institutions that help them. That's how you build the infrastructure. That will take several years, I would suspect, to, to put into place. And then you've got to get a global consensus on behalf of that. At that point, the national security law has been in place in Hong Kong for four, five, six years. Hong Kong presumably will have moved on and kind of accepted the fact or that it has become part of China and that despite the agreement that the British made when they left with China, that there would be basically, you know, one country, two systems, that there's, we've gone pretty quickly to, to one country, one system. I, it just seems unlikely to me that that's going to work, even though these are relatively powerful sanctions, they were put into place so quickly and without much of a plan as to how to change behavior and what sort of in incentives could be put into place that I just think what's more likely about this is they're, they're almost more likely to speed the integration of, of Hong Kong and China than to, to stop it because realistically for them to work, they'd stop it in four or five, six years once you put the structure into place. Yeah, I think another thing to keep in mind that we've touched on a number of times over the last few episodes is the idea that, I don't, I don't wanna go so far as to say that China relishes this, but they are certainly taking great pleasure from all of the public statements and other things that uh, are coming out from state media and other sources in China, trying to turn this on back on the US and call the US a bunch of hypocrites. Right. And, uh, you know, so I don't know that, uh, I don't know that they really feel like, to the extent that the US was, has, has made it has made it its point to play sort of the moral high ground on these human rights issues over the years. Uh, that is it's certainly in the eyes of China and many around the world on very tenuous footing these days. And so I, I don't know, you know, what is, there's going to have to be a lot of other changes before that would, that perception may shift. And, and as a result, I don't, you know, I think that has, to your point, the idea that a multilateral sanctions regime is often is almost, you know, clearly the most preferable, the most effective. I just can't see that really coalescing here, uh, despite, the, you know, the fact that um, I think most agree that 
Hong Kong is getting a bit of a raw deal on all this. Well, I mean, it, it, it is difficult for the current administration to convince the rest of the world that first and foremost among US policy interests is to ensure the protection of peaceful protesters. Um, you know, that's really a lot of what this is about because the security law was passed uh, by the Chinese government ultimately, but was tried to be forced on the Hong Kong government to go after protest and do, to go after dissent in Hong Kong. And, you know, historically, the United States has been a big leader around the world in trying to protect the right to free expression, the right to peaceably assemble. Um, it, right now is a hard time for the U.S. to convince the rest of the world that it's so serious about that, that they had to join a U.S. coalition to go against the, the second biggest economy in the world and to essentially fight a battle on that issue. It's just, I, I think that the timing from the Chinese perspective of all of this uh, could not be better. And I suspect that, that uh, the, the timing that they decided to pass the national security law, since it's totally within their control, was not coincidental. Opportunistic, yes. Uh, so before we segue to the the next topic, let me just let me just uh, sort of pivot back to the first uh, sort of item that I brought up, which was the um, the change in the export control treatment of Hong Kong, as you as we sort of touched upon earlier. Um, I think worth noting as well that this also could not come at a worse time for Hong Kong in, in terms of the fact that the U.S. is now applying harsher treatment to exports to China than it ever has. Uh, and we're going to, in two minutes, we're going to talk about some of the guidance that BIS just issued on on exactly that uh, point. So just any, before we sort of formally switch topics, any sort of final thoughts on on that aspect of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes to the, the point that we were discussing before about the, the fact that once once you go down this road from the U.S. perspective, it's going to be very hard to go back. I mean, we've got now, you know, you have clients, I have clients that are all scrambling to figure out what they're exporting to Hong Kong and actually conform it to what they're exporting to China. And those same clients are, as we'll talk about in a second, scrambling to figure out what they can what they're exporting export to, to China. To China. <laughs> but, but once they do that, and once you kind of line U.S. exporters up to treat Hong Kong like China, and you know this is likely to last for at least as long as the national security law lasts. The prospect of going backwards just isn't re very realistic. I mean, once this change has been made, it's going to be very, very hard to turn around. And so, from in, in some sense, this 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 change should please China greatly. Now, I, I do worry from China's perspective that that this is that this may wind up killing the golden goose. And so, so I, I think in the long term, there's some chance and maybe a good chance that Hong Kong is not going to be the economically powerful city that it has been in the past or city state that it's been in the past. But I think from China's perspective, to the extent China's goal is to, you know, incorporate Hong Kong within the rest of the country, that U.S. export policy now does that formally. And I don't think it makes China very sad for that to happen. And I think the fact that it's likely permanent is not going to make China very sad either. Yeah. Uh, so with that, on that happy note, let's pivot yeah. to item number two, which uh, I will I will hand over to Tim because as of uh, this is another topic that we addressed uh, on at some length in a recent episode. We're not going to rehash all of that, but as of a week ago today, as of June 29, we we had effective the new BIS rules relating to military end users and, and uses, and lo and behold, just one business day ahead of that uh, BIS release and guidance. So that's what we're going to get into now. Yeah. So this is just to kind of quickly rehash what we talked about, you know, the, the two second elevator version of that is that uh, back in, I think, April, the Commerce Department uh, passed or pr passed a proposed new regulation that became effective on June 29th, which uh, greatly restricted exports to China of a number of products. So it added the number of products and, and then added a restriction to exports to military end users. And, I, and it also broadened the restrictions on exports to military end uses. But for here, I really want to talk about military end users because I think that's the thing that has created the most confusion and, and the, the area that, that most of the guidance was aimed at. The reason that this created confusion was because the definition of military end users, which has not been amended, um, 
applies to things that you would actually think of as the military, like the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the Marines, the Coast Guard, and, and even the National Police, but they define it. And then they have uh, any other entity whose actions or functions um, serve military end uses. And that, as we talked about, you know, kind of at length in, in one of the earlier podcasts, the, the, that definition is potentially really broad when you combine it with the fact that there's a lot of civilian military integration in China. And so you have research inter institutions, universities in China, not too different from what happens here. They, they do some work for the military. And so if your customer is an end user that's a university, if your customer is an end user that is a hospital that might sometimes serve the military, uh, it, the fact is, does the fact that your customer has one department or one branch of it that does work for the military, does that mean they're a military end user? And we were very confused. I think we talked about why that, that the, the, the answer to that was confusing. And we had hoped that they would give us kind of a firm answer of no to that question, because you, you really should be looking at military end uses as opposed to this broad military end user concept. But the guidance did not answer the question in that way. And in fact, at least in my view, created almost more confusion. I mean, it did address this question that we had raised in the podcast, which was, say you've got a university. And, they, and the university does some military research in one branch, but you're dealing with an entirely separate branch. And they, they pose that as a frequently asked question. But the answer was maybe. I mean, maybe it's a military end user, maybe it's not. Here are the relevant factors, and one of which is you look at the specific department that you're dealing with, but they also said if the, the university is doing military research, that's a relevant factor. They told you to look at the individual, which is kind of weird guidance, because is, is it going to be professor by professor? And so if you have a professor that's never done any military research, does that, that is apparently a relevant factor, although that seems pretty hard to, to justify in terms of the ability of a, for diversion in that set of circumstances seems pretty high, if you ask me. So, so basically, they gave us some guidance. They told us what factors to look at, but they, it was like kind of, the, the, the main answer was like the, the joke of an economist's answer, which is, it depends, was the answer to almost every single one of these frequently asked questions. I guess the other thing that jumped out at me as is, is being kind of interesting is what the new rule did was that it essentially created a licensing requirement. So if you're going to sell certain products to a military end user in China, um, you have to figure out that they're a military end user. And if they are, then you have to go to the Commerce Department to get a license. And what the new rules said in, in, on, in its language was that there was a presumption that the license would be denied, which, you know, caused us both to... to believe, I think, that, that it would be very hard to get a license. But the new guidance also seems to say it depends on that. I mean, they do acknowledge the presumption of denial, but then they make it sound like that doesn't necessarily mean your license will be presumptively denied. So, so it, it's, it's still a lot of confusion. I think what we know for sure is that companies, especially early on, are going to have to err almost on the side of treating um, a lot of institutions in China that you wouldn't normally equate with military end users as potentially military end users. And, and the Commerce Department is going to see a ton of license applications trying to sort this out because the guidance doesn't get you there. Because you know I've worked through a lot of these concrete examples, as I've, I'm sure you have. And at the end of the day, when you parse through the guidance and you apply it to particular uh, exports to China, if your clients got items that are on the list, the answer almost always is, boy, it doesn't look to me like this is what you would normally think of as the military, but there are enough factors here that I wouldn't be confident that it's not. Yeah, I mean, so I think the, I think that's right. There's still plenty of gray area uh, here, and if not even more gray area than perhaps we were hoping there would be uh, after the release of the uh, guidance. So for those who haven't seen it, these were issued as frequently asked questions. Uh, and there were over 30 questions that are included in the document that came out uh, just ahead of the effective date of the new rules. Um, I think the, the, the overarching point that Tim was referencing before, which is, well, how does this really, how does the new military end use uh, definition really change what it means to be an, uh, a military end user? You have the traditional, well, I, you know, easy, easy to identify military end users. Th they did, and, and I'm talking now about question three, they did say 
well, there are this, there's this other category, other military end users, which would cover foreign national government organizations, as well as standalone enterprises, SOEs, or other specific entities that develop, produce, maintain, or use military items. The problem there is the or. The right. or still encompasses just about anybody in China. In China. That, was the, that was the problem that we talked about when we did the original episode. How, what, what limiting principles do we have there? And it seems um, from looking at some of the other questions and some of the other feedback here that there aren't many. And, and there, at the same time, there aren't really too many bright lines. So it's not necessarily that you know, one, one tie is enough to automatically make you a military end user, but it, but it may be, it depends. It's all based on facts and circumstances. And you know, the due diligence, the fact that the due diligence that companies are gonna have to do is a bit of a moving target is, is problematic. I mean, as a practical matter to just administer something like this, it's, it's very challenging. And I think to Tim's point, it's either going to re re um, result in lots and lots and lots of guidance requests and license applications that are coming in in the near term, or quite frankly, companies might work up an analysis on their own where they say, look, we've done this based on the guidance. We feel comfortable. We don't have actual knowledge or even, you know, we think knowledge that would be chargeable to us as a, you know, should have known standard that this entity is a military end user. We think we're okay. We're on the right side of it. We're going to go ahead and we're going to go ahead and export. I mean, that, that could very well be the way that some in sort of the risk-based approach and like taking a thorough look at it, companies are going to do that for sure. And we, I mean, we know some of them and others are going to be running to BIS for every, you know, possible wrinkle here. I think I would also add, Two other two other thoughts here that jumped out at me in the FAQs, and and we could spend an hour we could spend hours talking about these FAQs. We're not gonna we don't want to put everybody to sleep. Number one and number two, we don't want to have a five hour podcast. But um, if you look at question now, I'm I'm going down to question number nine, which talks about parents and and subs, and this is a bit like what Tim was touching on before, and it's trying to ask the question. It's trying to address the issue of well. What if an affiliate of my of my client, my customer, my end user, may have some military ties? Uh, is that enough? And again, essentially, I'm paraphrasing here, but essentially, the guidance is uh, you have to exercise due diligence to determine whether the parent or sub and those activities, those military activities, are relevant to your end user's activities. That's basically what they tell you. So, is that helpful? I, I don't know. Uh, I think it's I think it's questionable whether it's again all due respect to our friends at BIS who I know are trying to do the best that they can, but uh, this is this does leave I think a lot of big question marks here in terms of how people will be addressing these things. One area though that I will this is my last comment where I do think that there is maybe a little bit that was cleared up is there's a question that came up a, a little further down. This is questions 11 and 12. Uh, which talk about sales through distributors and intermediaries and third parties when there's knowledge that um, those distributors may have end users, military end users among uh, their client base or their ultimate end user base. And the question is basically, if I sell through one of those distributors, do I then have knowledge that my items are being sold to a military end user? And, and essentially, the, the answer is no, you don't necessarily. Now, they caveat it, of course, to say if you have specific knowledge that something's going to be rerouted to military end user and it's caught, it's on the supplement to list, then perhaps uh, that is enough to constitute knowledge. You would have to come get a license. But otherwise, a normal sales process through a distributor where you have no specific knowledge of any sales uh, that are going to military end users, you don't that doesn't necessarily convert that distributor or intermediary to a military end user. So I did, I actually did think that was somewhat useful because that's a, that is a question that comes up a lot uh, with any, with any big entities that are making uh, high volume commercial sales in China. No, absolutely. That was helpful. And, and I think, I mean, I do want to point, put a kind of a marker on one of the points that you made, Brian, that I, that I think is key, but I also think it prompted this guidance. So the rule says that, that in order to go get a license, you have to have knowledge that your, your end user is a military end user. And I think one of the things 
that is a theme throughout this guidance that prompt, likely prompted it is they don't want companies to come in and say, well, we have no knowledge that this, this company is a military end user, so we don't need to go get a license. Um, and so they highlight the sorts of due diligence that you have to do before you can say we have no knowledge. You can't just kind of look the other way and say, um, guess we didn't find anything to show us that they're a military end user, so we don't need a, a license. And, and I, I do think that, you know, you're, you're right. I, I, I thought that the, that the clarity that they brought to the, the issue with, with respect to subs and universities and distributors was, was in some ways better than I expected because I was very worried that for all of those, the answer would be that if you had one instance that either a distributor or a sub or, um, or, or, uh, or certainly a university had done any business with the military that that would create an automatic rule that you had a military end user. And they didn't say that at all. They, they do make it very clear that it is a, it's a case by case analysis uh, that is gonna turn on the specific facts and there's no one fact that is gonna necessarily be dispositive. And, that it, and it strikes me that you know with the distributor example and some of the others, that they are at the end of the day saying, if you do your due diligence and you still don't think that this is a military end user, you don't need to get a license. But what you can't do is you can't just say, hey, we're not gonna look because if we looked, we might find out it's a military end user. The last thing I'll say is that there was also something that kind of to go against that, um, but also I think plays in with the subsidiary issue. The Defense Department put out a list almost immediately before the due date of companies that uh, are in the United States, but they believe are owned or controlled by the Chinese military. And there were a lot of companies on that list. And and I think that that to the extent that uh, to the extent that the, the what they were trying to do on the parent subsidiary with the guidance was say one thing, I think they put out that list to also kind of send a message in the other way in, in essentially saying, you know, this is another thing that we think that you you are now on notice of. You can't deny notice of this um, in, in terms of making that calculation. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, I, I would just add also, just to be clear, I wasn't suggesting that any any companies or clients of ours certainly would take the bury your head in the sand approach to compliance no, here. No, no, no. The, uh, in fact, BIS has, there is a, a K, there was a question, question 15, which links to BIS's KYC guidance. And so I think every everybody should expect that that at the minimum is what would be expected of any companies that are conducting sales with any entities that are even arguably in the realm of military and user. Uh, but that being said, I think Tim is right that uh, it's not necessarily that if you are uncertain or you've you've gone through the necessary or uh, expected steps to do that analysis and you can't conclusively say, which of course, in many instances, some of this is going to be unknowable and it is information that is uniquely in the possession of that end customer and user that a, a company in the US or elsewhere around the world trying to do that KYC work is just never going to be able to get. Uh, then that may be enough, and you you don't necessarily have to go get a license. Uh, now, I think you're you you are still, as a practical matter, probably bearing some risk of having gotten it wrong there. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's not the message is not necessarily that please come to us for any time you sell to anybody in China because we're treating everybody like a military end user. It is the same message that is consistent at BIS and elsewhere in the in OFAC and other entities, which is we expect you all out there in the world to be applying risk-based compliance protocols to assess and do appropriate due diligence on your customers and the people you're selling to and through and doing business with. And even once you get through, if you exhaust that process and you still don't have a comfortable answer or it's still unclear, we're here to answer your questions and, and help you out. So that's not all that different than how all these, these things get handled pretty much all the time. So. Uh, with that, let's um, let's turn now to um, our third and final topic of the day. Uh, again, another China topic, which uh, sort of comes to some degree uh, out of something again that we talked about uh, quite a bit recently, which is the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act, which was just passed and signed into law a few weeks ago. Uh, this is not strictly speaking only a byproduct or a result of that act, although I think the timing was such that they were likely waiting for that to get to become enacted before this was put out. So 
this was last week as well, that there was a joint advisory that was issued by State Department, which was sort of nominally the lead on it, Treasury, Commerce, and, and Homeland Security, uh, that put out a, an advisory relating to uh, Xinjiang supply chain risk for businesses. And Xinjiang is the uh, region where the uh, Uyghur and other uh, internment camps and facilities, re-education facilities have been set up in China. And the general thrust of the advisory is to uh, put companies on notice of sourcing uh, any product or having any supply chain touches to that region because you may uh, ultimately be using and benefiting from the use of forced labor in your supply chain, which has taken on uh, elevated significance in the last couple of years in U.S. Uh, sort of compliance circles and protocols. It's something certainly that DHS and uh, CBP, Customs and Border Protection, uh, have emphasized and are enforcing uh, probably more in more uh, more frequently than many other agencies are at this point, uh, and and so it is uh, sort of a notable a notable thing to be putting out guidance like this and like some of the advisories that we've seen in recent months. This is much this sort of follows that same pattern where it's a bit of an everything but in the kitchen sink approach to this advisory where there's a lot of uh, factual background information about the uh, the camps in uh, in China, the use of forced labor, the types of industries that forced labor is being uh, used in, including a there's an, there's an appendix that's attached that includes industries where uh, there are particular concerns about the use of forced labor on a on a regular basis. Uh, and it also takes the opportunity to um, that's, a pen, that's Annex 3, by the way, to the advisory. Uh, it also takes the opportunity, I, I do think it's interesting to uh, emphasize, and, and this is, I'm certain, purposeful, to emphasize the potential reputational, um, economic, and legal, and other risks that businesses take on when doing, potentially doing business or having their supply chains touch upon uh, the Xinjiang region. In China, and so one thing that, and and I I should say, much like many of these other advisories, there are, is a section later on in the advisory where they they walk through the advisory walks through kind of the laundry list of different kind of legal problems that you can run into, whether it be unwittingly doing business with uh, companies on the entity list, and uh, BIS just placed 30 plus entities on the entity list uh, about a month ago most of whom were tied to this type of activity. So that's, that's a, again, sort of a timely follow-up on, on that. Um, some of the other legal authorities that exist there, but it's not primarily, I would say, about that, about the legal risk. It is to some degree. I read this more as a couple, couple things going on here, and, and, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. One is, I think this is a real... Uh, you know, sort of warning shot to big U.S.-based companies that have that have known ties to this region, and there are some. It's been reported. There's a number of companies that have been reportedly tied to the region. Uh, that um, for uh, liability and other reasons, I'm not going to mention any of them by name on the podcast. But you can find them if you look in certain some of the reporting that's out there on this uh, on this topic. And so I think it's a Again, by starting with reputational and economic risks, I think it's a it's an attempt by the U.S. government to sort of use that power of persuasion to get those companies to sort of back away from having any ties and to work proactively to take those ties out of their supply chains. That's number one. Um, and number two, again, the sort of the legal element of it, although there are considerable legal risks, um, that is not really what's front and center here. This is really, it's really constructed more as a, uh, written toward the compliance program managers, the compliance chief compliance officers, those types of folks, and perhaps trying to elevate the idea of business and human rights as it's often referred to and forced labor considerations into a more, uh, you know, a focal point of compliance efforts and trying to get people to integrate those uh, concepts into their compliance program. So, so that's part of, that's a lot of what I think is, 
going on here. So there, there are some practical elements of it, obviously. They're, they're warning about some specific things and specific problems that companies can run into if doing business or having any supply chain partners that are in this region, certainly, of China. But at the end of the day, I think this is in part a, a sort of a plea to, again, sort of elevate those issues to a higher, perhaps a higher level of uh, awareness and understanding than they've gotten uh, maybe in a large audience to date. So, so I'll stop there and throw it, throw it to you, Tim, to, to get your thoughts. I don't have a huge number of thoughts on this, but I was struck by a lot of the same things that you mentioned, Brian. I mean, I guess what I will throw out is that it is kind of unusual that this quickly after the sanctions authority went into place, you have a, an advisory kind of targeting that region that is signed off on by state, treasury, commerce, and DHS, all kind of pointing kind of almost as an afterthought to the legal risks of uh, doing business in, in Xinjiang, but also to the, the reputational risks and, and really kind of highlighting the reputational risks if you include um, this area of the world in, in your supply chain. And so, you know, we'll see if this is a, if this is a development towards the government agencies really getting serious about human rights and, and uh, what they go on to describe as, as forced labor and human trafficking concerns, um, or if it's just really targeted at, at, at kind of another swipe at, at China that is not going to be reflective of a more global focus on these sorts of issues. But it, the, the speed with which it came out and the fact that they went against reputational interests and kind of highlighted the reputational uh, risks that a company takes place if it does business in this area was, I thought, very interesting. Yeah, I think particularly to follow on to your point, which I think is exactly right, the, one of the centerpieces, and again, state the State Department really took the lead on the rollout of the advisory last week. Treasury in particular was, was uh, sort of surprisingly muted on this. But again, it, sanctions and their sanctions programs were not really front and center in the advisory. So, so to some degree, state taking the lead does make sense. The uh, Secretary Pompeo did make a statement, but the centerpiece of the rollout was really a letter from the Undersecretary uh, for Economic Growth, Energy, and the Environment, uh, Keith Cratch. And that is, it's literally titled Letter from Undersecretary Cratch to Business Leaders on Shenzhen uh, Supply Chain Business Advisory. And it, it is a, it's worth a read. It's, it's a, about a five-page letter uh, that you can pull off the State Department website, and it and it does exactly what Tim was just describing, which is this is really a, I think a plea. It's more, it's a little more, it's a little more carrot than stick than we're used to seeing these days. I think in terms of trying to appeal perhaps to, um, to reason, morality, and common sense more than threats to get. Uh, to get people to do what we want them to do, as we being the U.S. government. Um, so that letter from the Undersecretary at State, I think, is worth a read. And, and again, given that um, you know economic growth is his bailiwick, I think that is uh, I, what I said earlier, sort of the idea that there are some big U.S. companies that they're trying to perhaps budge off of their ties to uh, the region uh, in an effort to, to you know, maybe move the needle on this. I think that that really strikes me as kind of the number one purpose that they're they're aiming for here. Yeah, we'll see how it works. Yeah, like with anything else, we'll see how it works. We'll also see, I also think just one last comment, which is although the the uh, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act just went into effect a couple of weeks ago, I think there were maybe two sentences on that in the in the advisory, perhaps it was drafted and they weren't sure if it was gonna be ready before or right. after that was passed. There is, however, about half a page on the Global Magnitsky Act, which as Tim and I have pointed out before, was an authority that was already in place to go after anybody who is potentially violating now the, human, the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act. So it's interesting that they spend half a page talking about uh, GLOMAG as, as it is often referred uh, and how that, uh, you know, parties could run afoul if they're dealing with um, persons who could become designated under that or, or by your actions in the region could yourselves become designated. So uh, I did think that was interesting, but, um, but in any event, that, that is some real, that is a real sanctions nerd deep cut for all of you out there who are, who are <laughs> listening. Uh, so with that, I think we're going to end the, uh, the main portion of the show for today. And I will pause for the lightning round sound effect. Um, and with that, I'm going to turn it back over to Tim to introduce uh, our first of only two two topics today in the lightning round. And these will be real, like lightning-like 
lightning, lightning round uh, discussions, I think. I mean, the first one that we, we wanted to talk about was, you know, the Venezuela-Iran link that I think has been driving people over at the Treasury Department nuts because it was, there was so much publicity as these tankers from Iran came to Venezuela and there were articles about the sanctions implications of really probably the two highest sanctions priorities kind of getting together. And in some sense, it's like the penguin and the Joker um, from one of these, uh, uh, you know, Batman movies. They're, they're uniting their, their powers together to, to take certain actions. And I think that's certainly how the Treasury Department seemed to view it. And so as you saw these articles come out, it was relatively inevitable that uh, that the Treasury Department would try and use sanctions as a way to deter this sort of action or to punish it. And, and that is what they did on, on June 24th. Five of the Iranian captains who were uh, delivering gasoline to the Maduro regime uh, were put onto the SDN list. And the statement was really, as you would expect, the, these, the, and I think that the, the idea, and it's been pretty common recently in connection with Venezuela, is that the way to, to stop uh, the, the illegitimate oil trade in Venezuela is to go after the ships. And here, I think they went after the captains. Um, and, and kind of the other end to that is that in Venezuela in particular, and we've talked about this on other episodes, I think you've talked about it a lot, Brian, is that not only are you seeing these ships go onto the list quickly, you're seeing them come off the list with almost lightning speed. And so almost at the same time that the five Iranian captains went onto the list, uh, we had a bunch of um, a bunch of tankers that had been designated previously by by the Treasury come off the list. We we had on the on July 2nd, we had uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight tankers uh, that had been designated under the Venezuela sanctions that came off the list, presumably uh, because they had gotten their risk-based compliance program in order and, and promised that they were no longer going to do business with the Maduro regime. Yeah, that's really the only thing I want to comment on is that yeah, the eight the eight removals from last week and the and the and the um, the uh, ending of a general license that had been put in place just about two weeks before as well that was for wind down purposes with some of those entities. Uh, I think it's actually a mix of vessels and shipping companies that were taken off the list. But to Tim's point, we noted this. I think it was in the very last episode that uh, that's an interesting. Now I think we can call it a trend now that we've seen it a second time that uh, quick on the list, quick off the list uh, is something that uh, OFAC seems perfectly willing to do when it comes to illicit oil trade when, with respect to Venezuela, where, whereas we don't see that um, really anywhere else in any other programs. So, yeah, so keep an eye on that. And, and um, if you're somebody out there who's got a, Who's, who's got a vessel on ice because it's been blocked, then uh, you should really think about going to OFAC and committing to not uh, helping the Maduro regime any longer if, if, that's, uh, if that's a possibility, uh, because it seems that that's, uh, and, and abiding by risk-based compliance procedures, because it seems that, uh, and we don't have the specifics on, on this go around, but it seems like that's likely uh, what, was, what the commitment was to get these folks off the list as well. Lightning speed removals, yep. custom made for the lightning round. Exactly. Uh, and with that, let's go to the final topic. So this is an especially special lightning lightning round with just two topics today. So Huawei, as I mentioned at the outset, we can't get through an episode without talking about Huawei. Uh, so one thing we did want to circle back on, and, and there was an article or a, a piece that prompted this, um, and, and I'll give credit, it was in CNN. Uh, it was posted on CNN a few days ago. And it was basically positing the question, how big, what kind of trouble is Huawei really in? Is this, is this sort of just a political game that the US is playing? Uh, what does this really mean for Huawei sort of big picture? And I think the, what this sort of uh, kicked off for us, and this is something that has been written about a lot and we've talked about a lot, uh, maybe not on the pod, but off the pod, is what are other countries going to do with respect to Huawei? Because at the end of the day, uh, you know, putting aside the amendment to the foreign direct product rule and the entity listing and the government contracting restrictions that are about to go into effect and all the rest of it with respect to Huawei, um, this is all about a battle for 5G infrastructure and supremacy in 5G infrastructure. And in the U.S.'s view, keeping Huawei out of that game certainly in the US and as much as possible elsewhere around the world. 
because of the fears of the security uh, hazards that that uh, means in terms of providing data and access to, to communications and, and other data back to the uh, government in China. And so um, not surprisingly, the US is engaged in quite a bit of lobbying among allies and others around the, around the globe to try to get uh, other countries on board with our view of the threat here. And you know, there have been a few that have, uh, that have come along pretty quickly and willingly, I think. Those are close security allies like Australia and New Zealand. But just about everybody else has kind of uh, held out. There have been a number uh, over the last year or two that have fallen into place in, in Europe and other uh, parts of the world. But, but big economies, uh, big countries where this is a big question for whether Huawei is going to be involved in 5G, the 5G infrastructure build in the UK, in Germany, in France, places like that. Um, this has been a sort of big question mark. But now... Uh, you know, I think there's an added layer, which is uh, with the U.S. restrictions and with the supply chain restrictions that Huawei now faces itself under as a result of the um, taking some of the foundries perhaps out of circulation for Huawei, even with the stockpile they've built up of chips, um, will they be able to deliver? Will they be able to actually provide uh, that the networking and infrastructure needs that are going to be demanded of 5G? if this remains, if these restrictions remain in place. So in some strange way, this little echo chamber of the US's construction has perhaps started to um, influence others in ways that maybe weren't anticipated at the outset here. So I, I think it's, it still remains to be seen where various countries are gonna come down on this, but I do think that play, pay close attention in the next few months to how countries are dealing with this issue. And if you're listening in an in a EU country in particular, any of the ones that we mentioned, uh, Germany, France, and, and the UK uh, especially, be keeping a close watch on this because this is a big deal. Uh, and I think they're taking, those countries are taking a more measured approach here. They're, they're trying not to politicize this and they're trying not to be seen for obvious reasons as doing the bidding of the US when it comes to coming uh, to, a, to a, a view on this issue. Uh, that being said, it, it's very possible that it, some, if not most of them, may ultimately end up aligning largely with the U.S. on this issue. So I'll stop there. Yeah, well, so, you know, Huawei has proven very resilient. So I think it would be best not to underestimate their capacity. We've seen how they've stockpiled chips. But that all said, this is potentially a, a really significant development with respect to whether or not it can continue to thrive despite being placed on the U.S. entity list and despite all of the kind of tweaks to the entity list rules that the U.S. has made with, precisely with Huawei in mind. And it suggests that this last one that really was designed to limit Huawei's ability to get chips for its, its 5G uh, equipment may have had a serious effect. Now, the the real key to this, from what you know, we're looking at is what will the UK do and what will Germany do? And there's signs that the UK and Germany are actually going to start really trying to to wall off Huawei in much the same way that the US has. And for entirely different reasons, uh, India is going down that road and looks much more likely to stick. And so between those three. Um, pretty big economies, actually, if they essentially join the U.S. side on this um, with respect to Huawei, they could start to feel the, the pain fairly quickly. And I think then the question is, well, what happens next? Do they just uh, accept that or do they come to the table and start talking about ways that they could um, address the concerns of the U.S., the U.K., and, and Germany. I, again, I think India is different because there's a there's at least partly a shooting war going on between China and India right now, and so I think that's what's driving that. But with respect to just the pure trade issues, I think this is definitely worth watching, and I think that we'll, we'll probably be talking in the next episode about what Huawei's kind of counter move is to this. Their, their reach out to the U.K., reach out to Germany, uh, or potentially their reach out to the U.S., but somehow uh, they're going to have to deal with this development if it turns out to be real. Right. Or do they double down on the strategy that they've largely employed in the U.S., which is to be highly litigious, True. which is to just take everything to court, challenge everything, and try to fight that way. And that could, that could also be what we see in some of these other countries. So 
yeah, agree. I, I think uh, don't count Huawei out by any stretch. I did not mean to signal that uh, uh, that they are that they are down for the count. But uh, in any event, I think this is uh, worth again keeping an eye on uh, the sort of broader view, not just the U.S. view on Huawei and how that's going to play out in the coming months. All right. Uh, so with that, I think we're wrapped for today. Uh, thank you to everybody for joining us uh, once again. Again, hopefully everybody uh, in the States certainly had a, a, good, uh, a good 4th of July weekend following on a good Juneteenth holiday a couple weeks before. Uh, and um, we're looking forward to coming back in a couple weeks. Again, perhaps we can muster up some non-China content uh, in two weeks. Uh, if uh, if if uh, circumstances align right, but um, again, thank you for everybody uh, tuning in. Uh, please subscribe. Please give us a rating. And until next time, uh, stay safe, stay well, and stay sanctions free. Thanks. Everybody. More more summer podcasting to come. Yes. Stay thank you. sanctions free, everybody. Until Thanks. Next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye.